Just for a moment, I want you to now, if you use a, something old-fashioned, if you use it, it's called a Bible with, like, leather around it and things that you hear turn like this. Or if you choose to use an electronic version, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter number 59 for just a moment. And we're going to read this. And I'm not going to exhort, but we're going to read it. I'm going to exhort following it in just a moment. I know that it's kind of risky to read that much of Scripture in one setting because typically in our culture today, people, there's two or three verses here. We've got to try to keep your mind moving, all those things. But this context says it all. Uh, it, it's, there's 21 verses there. There's three verses in the, in the 60th chapter that correspond with each other. Let me take just a moment to talk to you about the book of Isaiah. I'm one that's always... I always attempt to be true to the context. I don't want to, it's easy to manipulate the Word of God. I can search in the Scriptures something that belonged to a particular era, a particular moment, a particular time in history, and I can try to apply it to our time, and in doing so, I might misappropriate the Word of God. I don't want to do that. I want this to be understood in its context, and then understand if there is some type of shadow. Is this to a degree somewhat prophetic of the generation in which we live? And so that's what we have to ask ourselves. Isaiah lived in the time period or, or prophesied in the time period of 740 to 681 B.C. And so if you know anything at all about the history of Israel, the nation of Israel and the, and the temple of Israel was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the king of Babylon. So he, Isaiah is living in the days that lead up to that and the depravity that's in the land. Isaiah is... Uh, uh, is ministering uh, during the time of four uh, kings in Judah. The, the, the nation is divided of Israel and Judah at that time, the ten northern uh, tribes making up Israel, the two southern tribes making up Judah, and the, the, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, has invaded the land. He has ravaged the ten nations, uh, ravaged them. He's also attempted to come and take Jerusalem. And if you read Bible history, you'll know at this time, it was during the reign of King Hezekiah, who was one of the godly kings of Judah. And that time, Sennacherib had actually, through his, uh, his, his general, had given a uh, letter to Hezekiah, uh, warning the people that they should not follow Hezekiah. Don't follow his, his lead, because you're going to become like all the other nations that have been devoured by the Assyrian army. And, and, he, and they falsely accused Hezekiah. And Hezekiah took that letter and he went into the presence of God and he stretched it out and he called upon the name of God. And God heard his humble petition. And God sent the prophet Isaiah and encouraged Hezekiah that God would deal with Sennacherib, that you wouldn't have to deal with him. You would never even have to draw a bow or wet a sword. You wouldn't have to send a soldier. And when the Assyrians encamped around about Jerusalem to take the city, the Bible says that God sent an angel throughout the camp. And in one night's time, remember the death angel that passed through Egypt? The death angel passed through the Assyrian camp. And in one night's time, 185,000 soldiers were slain. And the, the rest woke up in the morning to death all around them. And they picked up and they fled. And God miraculously preserved his people. I'm telling you, that's just, and that's just a little history lesson, just real quickly. Isaiah is ministering during those times. And you would think that when you have a sovereign, supernatural intervention of God like that, it would spark revival through the land. 
You would think, man, people would hear about that, and they would rend their hearts as well as their garments, and they would turn to God with fasting and prayer like Hezekiah did, but that was not the case. And Isaiah ministers the word to a people whose hearts, who are by election, they are the covenant people of God. By election. They've been chosen because they are the descendants of Abraham. But I'm telling you, their hearts are far from him. And Isaiah describes for us what it was like in Israel in those days. And we're going to read it quickly. But just, and I may glean across part of it for the sake of time. But Isaiah comforts them initially saying, The Lord's hand that is not shortened, the first verse, that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But here's the issue. He said, Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood. There's bloodshed in the land. Your fingers are with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice. No one pleads for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and they bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their egg dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. It takes great courage for Isaiah to deliver this oracle. This bold prophet speaks the truth in a generation that has turned their backs on the truth. He said, their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts and the thoughts are of iniquity. They waste, and their destruction are in their past. The way of peace have they not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths, and whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Therefore, justice is far. Now, now, notice this. The, The prophet does not lay this entirely upon the people. But he assumes some of the responsibility. He too is an Israelite. Or Israelite. He, it's not just they. He transitions here with we, us. And you'll notice this as he uh, continues to speak. Therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. Notice this. We grope for the wall. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight, and we are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. So we're angry in one sense, and then we're we're mourning in sadness in another sense. We look for justice, but there is none. We look for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord. And departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Notice this. This is one of the tipping point verses in this passage. Speaks, and I believe, I say this so respectfully. I believe it is a little picture of a parallel of what we see in our culture today. The 14th verse says, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. Truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. 
The moment you turn your back and say, I'm not going that way again. I'm going to go God's way. You immediately become a prey. Oh, my goodness, right there. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him. God was displeased. It grieves the heart of God. God loves mankind. Can I tell you the scripture that we all can quote, John 3 and 16, for God so, it's not God hated the world, God loved the world. God cares for us. And when he saw the condition of mankind, now in the days of Noah and the depravity of humankind or mankind in the days of Noah, God determined that he would pronounce judgment upon the world. But he has since promised us that he will not judge the world in those means again. So this time is a prophetic promise, not of destruction, but of deliverance. Of deliverance, because he said, when there was no man and wondered why no intercessor, why could there be nobody that would truly intercede? Not petition Washington, not picket outside of abortion clinics, but where is the person that will lock himself up with God and put one hand into the heart of God and the hand of God and the other in mankind and intercede with his whole soul until the power of God is released, until we see a change in our culture. Can we go farther than this? He said, therefore, his own arm. God said, when there was no intercessor, God said, I'm going to intercede. When there's no one to rise up for salvation, he said, I'm going to provide it. And in his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and he was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, he said he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay, but they shall fear the Lord and the name of the Lord from the west. And look at this. Here's a promise. And his glory will begin to rise like the rising of the sun. For when the enemy comes in like a flood, the word of God says the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. I want to remind you today, church family, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. But we wrestle with principalities and powers against the rulers of spiritual wickedness in high places. And I'm talking about higher than white, the White House or, the, uh, or the higher than our, our Congress and our Senate. I'm talking about evil spirits that are seeking to control the hearts and the minds of men. And God says, I'll raise up a standard against our adversary. The Redeemer will come to Zion. I love the promises here. It's five verses of Scripture left. He said, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, God said. My spirit who is upon you. Remember, I've been preaching to you for the last three to four weeks that you are anointed of God, that God's put his anointing upon you. It's not just preachers and pastors, but it is the parishioners. It's the body of Christ that have a sacred, holy anointing upon their lives. God said, I'll put my anointing upon you, my words which I put in your mouth. They will not depart from your mouth. I believe God is going to raise up a new generation of men and women who have put their faith in God and they have sold themselves out to the covenant promises of God. And when the, when the, when the, when the lies of men seek to pervade into our minds, into our textbooks, into our, into our government, and also even into our church houses, we will know the truth. Come on, we will know the truth, and we will be bold and courageous enough to speak the truth. He said, it will not depart from your mouth, for, from your descendants, and even from the, your descendants, descendants, he says. So then he says, 
as a result of the promise of God to pour His Spirit out upon His people in the midst of a depraved culture. God said this to the people that have responded to His call. He said, Arise and shine, for the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. This is our moment. There's darkness in the earth, church family. There is darkness. We would be lying to say there's not darkness in the land and gross darkness upon the people. Deep darkness, the New King James says. Gross darkness, the King James says. But let me tell you, there's a promise from God that God's going to rise over you. God's going to cause you to rise up. And the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So in the midst of a depraved culture in the days of Isaiah, a people that had watched the supernatural, providential protection of God preserve the posterity of their nation by preserving both the temple and the worship of God and the kingdom in Jerusalem, and yet it was not enough. And they were easily prey to idolatry and wicked practices and exhortation and oracle. A word comes to them from Isaiah the prophet that should smite them in their hearts and lead them to repentance. And God promises that if they will repent, his glory will fall upon them and then they'll be a light to the nations. We tell you, church family, we need such to happen in this great land that we call the United States of America. Let me say this today as I begin to share with you what God's laid on my heart for a few moments here today. That I do not believe I do not believe that partisan politics is the answer to the dilemma that's in America today. I don't believe it's exclusively the problem. There's parts of it I do believe is exclusively the, part of the problem, but not completely. I believe it goes deeper than that. But let me tell you, I, I leaned conservative in my political views, absolutely. But let me tell you, I do not believe that the Republican Party is the answer to the dilemma that's in America today. God didn't say he promised to shine his light on the Republican Party. He said he promised to shine his light on his people that are called by his name. That believe in him and believe in the word of God and that have trusted in what God has said. And so there's a lot of confusion. And I know this past week we, and, and two weeks ago we, we saw some things and some things have happened that, that perhaps have spoken to our nation once again. One of which that, that I feel like I would mention today, the Christian community both mourns and rejoices with the passing of Billy Graham. Labeled uh, affectionately as America's pastor. As when we say he, we mourn because his voice is silenced in that sense. But I tell you, we rejoice that he is rewarded in God's eternal kingdom. Amen? But we also have sat back and we have watched a debate that began to emerge once again over the infamous subject of gun control in response to the horrific school shooting in Florida on February the 14th, 2018, in which 17 students died at the hands of one of their former classmates. And all of us here today... Unless you've been in that moment, you can't, I don't think we could fathom what it would be like to have dropped our child off at school that morning. Come on, let's be honest. I don't care what side of the argument that you're on. There has to be deep felt sympathy, sorrow, empathy for the families and compassion, right? Because it, it affects all of us. Is that, is that correct? 
And so now we've gotten the, the, the continued conflict that's reemerged. It has never gone away over gun rights, guns accessibility. And there's this argument and there's that argument. But I, I, I thought for myself, no matter what side of that argument you're on, is that really our greatest threat? Is our greatest threat bound to gun rights? Or is our greatest threat uh, bound to the possibility that a depraved person might grab a gun? And do something uh, with it uh, to harm others. Is there more? You know, I want to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. I have guns at my house today. They're not loaded, but they are there. They're not necessarily to protect me. Some of you use your guns to protect you. I'm not saying that I wouldn't in the case that I felt like I needed to. Mostly they're there to harvest the American wild turkey here in a couple of months. But I've kind of resolved some. Yes, I feel Jesus right there. Let's, can, can we take a praise break right there? I feel a praise break about to break out. <laughs> so with that said, though, in my heart of hearts, I just know that, um, that when, when people are really depraved, I don't know if there is enough gunfire to protect you. God has to. I'm not saying you don't need to arm yourself and do your part. I'm, I'm not here to create that argument. But I'm here to respond just a little bit to some of the, the, the information. And as I say so, I say it with all Again, I'm trying to say as, as horrific as that shooting was and any that have happened preceding it and any that may follow in the future because I can't say that's the last, right? And I don't care. You can try to, you can, you can try to take everybody's gun away from them, but you, it's the depravity of the mind, right? It's not the gun. It's the depravity of the mind. But I'm gonna, I did my own research and, because I've had this in my mind. Is that really those that are really arguing this case about how we're losing our young children uh, to death on school campuses. Have you really stopped to look at what's really killing our kids? Can, have you really? Because I want to do that with you today, okay? My kids have all graduated from high school and college in that sense, and I only have one left in the collegiate world. But did you know that since the history of these United States, the history, mass shootings previously were defined by four people killed at one time, but now they take away the shooter themselves who often either commit suicide or is killed by intervening forces. So three people killed in a mass shooting on a school campus. In the history of these United States, there have been 258 taken. Now, one is too many. We understand that, correct? I understand that wholeheartedly. 258 in mass shootings. Did you know that the very first mass shooting in the United States was conducted by Indians or Native Americans who climbed into a schoolhouse in the 1700s in Virginia and killed the teacher and a number of the students? So this didn't just happen in our generation, right? But the number has continually to increase. So then I went beyond just mass shootings. And I'm going to give you this number right here. The total number of students that have been killed all time. Remember, one is way too many, right? And I understand that. 585 students have been shot and killed all time in the history of these United States. Now, this is one thing that causes us to address the issues of our generation. So take that number 585, and let's think about our generation. Since the 50s concluded and the 60s began, which is what many of us believe when the morality of America began to decay. I mean, if, 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 a, if a nation can have a conscience, because I know we're all individuals, but if collectively there's a, a consciousness of our nation and a, a moral conviction of our nation, many of us point to the 60s as the time that things began to transition. Prior to that, there was 105 killed in school shootings 
in the history of the nation. Since the 60s, there have been 480 to bring our total to 585 students that were shot and killed all time in the history of the United States. And again, let me say this. I understand that one is too many because that should be a safe place for our children to be educated, in the, even in the public sector. But now let me give you some other numbers comparatively because I want you to know today, I want you to know today as people argue for gun control and rights, that is not the number one thing that's killing the kids today. Did you know that every year in America, 4,300 school-aged children will die from underage drinking? Did you, let me, I'm just going to go out there on that. In the history of America, 585 have died as a result of a gunshot. But in the last 10 years alone, 43,000 school-aged children have died because they, they, they died because they overdrank or they died in an alcohol-related accident or to alcohol poison directly related to alcohol. Where's the battle for that going on in our public sector? Come on, if we want to be honest and say, what's really killing the kids, can I be honest? Let's talk about it. So let's go farther than that just a little bit today. What about drugs? In 2015, 772. Now, actually, drugs, a lot of kids are not dying due to overdose. But the ages 15 to 19, okay, teenage years, prior to college, 772 died. Once again, that's 772 too many. But again, that number, though it is smaller than alcohol-related deaths, it's still greater than all the number in the history of these United States to a child that's died at the hands of a shooter on a school campus. So let's go a little bit farther. Let's say, let's take it. Well, say, well, Pastor, how many people die annually in America as a result of a homicide by a gun? The national average is around 9,000. Now, 13,000 at times the number is shown, but often that includes suicide. But homicides as a result of gunfire, 9,000. How many people in America die every year as a result of alcohol? 88,000 die as a result of alcohol. So even guns aren't killing our, our citizens. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Dr let's go to drugs for just a moment. 52,000 people die annually in the United States of this right here, of drug overdose. So you put those together and you're looking at somewhere approximately around 140,000 Americans die at the hands of drugs and alcohol. While we scream for gun reform because, again, of a tragedy that happened. I'm telling you, the reason why I'm here today is because there's something much grosser, something much darker, something much deeper at work. I'll even go one beyond this. Take that number of those that have died in the history of the United States. The history of the United States as a result of gunfire. What was it? 585 or 505? 585? 3,200 will die this year as a result of distracted driving. Mostly at the hands of a cell phone in their hand. Where's Apple? At, on the television screen saying, hey, 
we got to take these out of the hands of our kids. These are killing 20 times more. I know you didn't come to hear that, but I came to tell you anyhow, right? So I'm just telling you there's a gross darkness in the land that we're shouting at one thing while something else is killing us. That's where we're missing the moment here, missing the heart of this. And so the rise of violence in our schools and on our streets, etc., have greatly increased in America since the 60s. Would you all agree? I don't know what life was like back prior to that since I was born in the 60s, but I'm sure it contrasted greatly. And I'm not saying America's ever been a perfect country. We know that as long as men are born under an Adamic curse, there's going to be issues that have to be dealt with, right? The only hope we have is redemption through Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I'm asking, this is something that you see tossed to and fro. Can we place blame accurately? That's what everybody wants to do. Everybody wants to lay blame somewhere, don't we? Republicans want to blame the liberals. The liberals definitely want to blame the conservatives and gun control and NRA and all these things. Some say it's guns and people's access to them. That's what others say. Remember, that's not why I'm here today. I think it's, I think it's deeper than that. I think it's far deeper. Others believe that exposure to violence in the media, such as, as grotesque violent, grotesquely violent video games. Now, some scientists try to say, well, that doesn't affect. I say hogwash on that. I say you can't sit there hour after hour after hour and watch gunning down people in all kinds of capacity and that not alter your consciousness some. I, I, I don't care what the scientist in, in that says. Those are the same scientists that dig a rock out of the earth and declares that it's trazillion years old and there is no God. So I, I have very little uh, respect in that sense. Let me ask you this real quickly here. Not only video games, but movies. My God. Come on, let's just be honest. What are we watching, people? And I'm not just talking about the world. I'm talking about us. What about some of us in here and the movies that you sit in front, in front of hour after hour and fill your heart and mind with all of that evil and that violence and then come to church and try to worship out of it? Man, get it out of your heart. Get it out of your life and get it out of your home in Jesus' name. Just going on. Let me go a little farther. What about, you say, what about what's contributing to the violence? What about a fatherless generation? If you really wanted to ask, especially in the African-American community, which I don't like that terminology, but I'll just use what I like, the black community, the white community, the black community in America. Did you know only one out of four black children is born in a home with a mother and father present, both present with a father in the household? So that means three out of four are born without the strength and the stability that a father can give the home. I believe that that is greatly contributing to the violence in the black community, perhaps above all else. Let me ask you this question. What effect does teaching evolution have? Isn't evolutionary teaching that we're nothing but human animals in the first place? Nobody's out there arguing when one bear kills another bear in the, in the tundra somewhere, right? And so we taught our kids that there is no God and there's no moral absolutes We've taught our kids that you don't have a God consciousness and you're not made in the image of God. You're the result of some, some, some happenstance that happened in the eons of old and that there's no heaven, no hell, and no eternal consequences for your actions. And then we wonder why they want to take guns and kill each other. Martin Luther said this. He said, I'm afraid that schools 
will prove to be the great gate of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures, engraving them in the hearts of the youth. Unfortunately, we're living to see the fruits of teaching consecutive generations that there is no God and there are no eternal consequences to how you... But Paul, Paul said in Romans that there's an eternal consequence. Let's go a little bit farther. Can I do that today? Okay. I feel like it. Anyhow, if you have to leave, you'll just have to leave. Opponents of gun control cite the disarming. Now, this is the opponents of gun control. They cite the disarming of previous citizens by their own government that led to genocide and mass murder. They cite how the Turkish government disarmed the Armenians and uh, back in the early 1900s and later 1.5 were slaughtered. They cite how Russia and China and certainly Germany and the killing fields of Cambodia and Guatemala and in our generation, Uganda, when we watched the Ugandan genocide happen in the late 80s. And so, so that, that, that argument is there, and, and, and I can see a portion of that as well. And so I want to go even farther with what I've already started down this road because Isaiah didn't just say they, Isaiah said us. So as I say this, as I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hasten this here in just a moment and bring this, part of this that I'm here today is just to remind you and to just show you just very, very quickly that a darkness is upon the land and there's a dullness of sensitivity in the minds and people are groping for darkness and groping in the darkness thinking this is the answer and that's the answer. And let me tell you, the only answer is found in our nation turning its heart back to God. That's the only answer. Repentance before God is the only answer. We can put all of our hopes in electing this president and that president, but if he's still leading depraved people, it matters not. Can I go farther just a little bit about drug addiction for a moment of time? I'm so grateful for the men and women that are part of our church that come out of drug addiction. They have a testimony that they broke the chains through Jesus Christ of an addiction that pulled them through the ravages of hell. And some of them lost their family only to emerge on the other side, ravaged and torn. But then they found themselves redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now God is slowly putting their families back together one by one. Well, you know what? Listen, let's give them... Come on, there are many among us. Thank God for that. There are 24 million more of them right here in these United States of America. 24 million Americans confess to using illicit drugs in a month's time. 24 from the ages of 12 years old and upward. 56% of all Americans claim to drink. You can do your social drinking if you want to, but as for me, I've seen no good in it. That's just me. I see no good in it, and I ain't got no time for that. If I feel like I need something that's grape-oriented, I'll take Welch's. But here's one that often goes overlooked, but we ought to address it just real quickly because it's a reminder of the depravity of what's taking place in our culture. Pornography is rampant. Did you know that 30% of all Internet industry is porn? Now, you think about all the internet sites that you see, 30%, one in three. Did you know there are more visitors to porn sites than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined? $97 billion per year worldwide industry, a $12 billion industry in the United States of America. 
And we wonder why we have people depraved in action because they're hiding themselves somewhere with a computer or a cell phone, feeding their mind with an image of sexual distortions and perversions and sometimes even violence that induces rape and sodomy. Let's go a little bit farther today. What about abortion? I don't touch on that very much, but I'm just going to put the numbers out there. Since Roe versus Wade in America, 60 million plus abortions have taken place. Here's the reality. Americans are addicted to drugs. We're addicted to alcohol. We're addicted to pornography. We're addicted to aborting unwanted children. And we're addicted to raising children in a home without the presence and the stability of a father. I say that we're not far off from the image that was portrayed in Isaiah's day. I know it's not an exact replica, but I know that there is some similarities. We continually look to government to solve our problems. We blindly stab at the darkness. We hypocritically claim gun ownership to be the source of our trauma. Listen to this. We hate, as Americans, the moral voice of the church. I'm going to say that again because you didn't hear that. Americans hate the moral voice of the church. We hate the faith of many of our founding fathers. We hate the biblical roots of the Constitution. Americans say they believe in God but don't necessarily worship Him. Let me tell you, God is great and He's greatly to be praised. And let me tell you, you can say you confess that you believe in God, but that doesn't make you a believer in God. The, the Scripture says, uh, or in this context, Americans say they believe in God but don't necessarily worship Him and are growing more and more hateful and hostile towards Christianity. That's just the truth. Am I telling the truth today? I'm trying to charge you as a church family. We're living, Paul said, in dangerous times, perilous times. And we can't just sit back and kind of isolate ourselves in the church like it's not going to influence us any longer. It has already influenced us. And it's time for us to be the influencers of our generation. It's time for us to once again emerge. Americans are turning a blind eye to the violent history of Islam. We've been duped by the media that Islam is a peaceful religion. And you trace its history, it's the most violent religion the world has ever known. Americans have a form of godliness, but we reject the truth and the authority of His Word. Early colonists said this in America, No king but Jesus. Now Americans say no to King Jesus. Americans want the church to perform their marriages, biblically sanctioned or not, and perhaps speak a few comforting words at their grandparents' funeral. Or maybe be a part of a social cause such as feeding the hungry or clothing the, the poor. But absolutely no, the church cannot and should not have a voice in the public education or the government of its citizens. Previously, the only voice that's been censored in the last 50 years in the America where we have our free speech in our Constitution, the only voice censored was the pastor's censored in their own houses of worship as a result of the Johnson Amendment. But let me tell you, God's raising up a new generation that doesn't care. Doesn't care because we're emboldened by the Spirit of God. 
that we've got a word that must be spoken and the people need to hear it. I can't go where you go, but you can go where God sends you. And you need to have the word in your heart the way that Isaiah said. He promised a day the Spirit of God would come upon the children of God and you would go forth and your children and your children's children would speak the word of God confidently and with all boldness in Jesus' name. Isn't that our responsibility? We're not here to have a social club. We're not here to just pat everybody on the back and say, hang on until he comes. We're here to be salt and light. We're here to take the light of the gospel into the darkness of this world and tell the world there's only one hope. There's only one way. There's only one true way of peace and salvation, and that's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That's what the church exists for. Now many politicians, especially liberal politicians, have attempted to mute the voice of the pastor even in the pulpits of their own churches. Let me tell you, this is our close today. Do you remember in the days of Israel, Ahab, and Jezebel? You remember that? And no king, through the influence of his wife Jezebel, who was of the daughter of the prince of Sidon, had introduced Baal worship into Israel. And during the days of Elijah with the famine in the land, as a result of the prophetic declaration of Elisha the Tishbite, who spoke to Ahab and said it would not rain for three years on the face of the earth unless I pray. And he prayed, and God had shut up the rain. And you know what happens when the rain is shut up? There's famine and there's pestilence and all the things that had taken place. And Ahab, everybody pointed blame. Until God spoke to Elijah after three years and said, I want you to go and I want you to meet Ahab and I want you to meet him on Mount Carmel and there's going to be a showdown of the prophets of Baal versus the lone solitary figure, the prophet of God, Elijah. Y'all know that story. It's contained in 1 Kings chapter number 18. But here's what is on my heart today as I close this message today. When Ahab uh, was out looking for Elijah, God directed Elijah to where Ahab was. Ahab couldn't find him, searched for him for three years. You know where God had hid him? I love this. One day I'm going to preach a message hidden in plain sight. You know where God hid him? God hid him in Sidon, the birthplace of Baal worship. God took him to the most evil, the originating, the originating point of Baal worship, and hid him there for three years, right in their midst, hidden in plain sight, until he brought him back to the land of Israel to reprove the king and to set up the meeting on Mount Carmel. And listen to this. When the king saw Elijah, here's what he said. He said to him, he said, you are he that troubles Israel. The blame of all the travail in the nation was put upon the prophet. But the prophet was bold and strong. He said, you are to blame for introducing bell worship and your wife. Don't we need a generation that's courageous enough to deflect the accusations that are made upon the church by us? Church family, the hope that America has is for the Christian church to be strong, anointed of God, and reaching out with the loving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I close today, never before in the history of this nation have we needed a supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired revival than we do right now. Can I say that one more time? Never before in the history of this nation have we needed a supernatural Holy Spirit-inspired revival than we do right now in this nation. Darkness has been on the land as in the days of Isaiah. Truth has fallen in the streets. And politicians and people and common citizens are groping in the darkness, searching 
searching, searching, searching while we have the light and the light's been hid under a bushel for too long. Let the light of the gospel shine through you. It's the only hope that our nation has. Let the light of his love and his grace shine through you. Aaron, join me as I close. America, with the Statue of Liberty holding forth a beacon of light, has fallen into gross darkness. But God promises that the church will arise and shine for our light has come. It may be the darkest day in America's history, but it can be our brightest hour if we'll be who God's called us to be. If we'll have the sweet fragrance of his presence on us every day. If we'll get up in the mornings with our hearts set after God, running after him every day because we've, before we go out into this depraved world, we go out by having studied and read the word of God in early morning devotions, covering our families in prayer, going out to be a bride, going out with purpose every day. Don't go to work because you have to go to work. Go to work because you get to go to work because you are an ambassador for Jesus Christ and the people around you sit in darkness and they need the light of his love that shines in you. Stand with me today. It's tough, church family. It's tough. Come on, let's be honest. I lack the ways and the means to adequately describe the depravity that has taken place in our culture and in our midst, in our students, children, our co-workers. But they are not without hope. Mankind is redeemable by the love of Jesus Christ and the power of his cross and the delivering power of his blood. I don't believe it. I'm going to say it again. I'm anti-liberalism in almost every capacity. But I want to say this. I don't believe the Republican Party is the answer. I just don't. I mean, I'm for it. Uh, you know, I'm going to vote Republican, all that. That's all good for me. I don't care if that's good for you. That's the way I roll. But at the same time, at the same time, I don't believe that's the hope of America. I don't. I believe the hope of America is when the church manifests the glory of God, when the power of conviction is returned to the church again. When the power of conviction is in our midst, when our hearts are rent, come on, not just our garments, and we're groaning and travailing for the souls of the men and women that we work amongst every day. Would y'all join me at the altar for prayer? For just a moment today, let's just come together in a powerful moment of intercessory prayer. Would you take just a moment? You say, Pastor, this doesn't affect me. Hogwash. It does affect you.